Lean in, Lisa, put her to the test. Lean in, Lisa, so get off your chest. It's more than just a trend, cause everyone's her friend. So lean in with Lisa, spend your time with Lisa. Lisa's got something to say. So reach out to Lisa every day. Hey everyone. Thanks for leaning in with me today. I have a very special guest on my show. She is a clinical psychologist who works with kids and families. She got her BA from Berkeley and her PhD from Stony Brook. And she is Dr. Daniela Owen. So reach out to Lisa every day. Thank you for being with me today. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I'm going to call you Dr. You know what? I'm going to call you doctor because you are a doctor. But I remember you when you were five. So it's it's like I still see the little girl who made us very proud, the whole entire family very proud. And I was at, oh, my God, I saw you speak at Berkeley at the graduation. And you are wonderful. So how are Thank you? you? I'm great. I'm great. We have uh, so much to talk about today. Um, first of all, you are an author. I should have said that in the intro, which is the co coolest thing. Thank you. <laughs> what made you decide to, first of all, be a family psychologist? So I pretty early on knew I was interested in psychology when I started as an undergrad at UC Berkeley, I just started taking psych classes and realized that was the path. So uh, majored in psychology, got my degree there, and then went on to Stony Brook, uh, where I did my PhD after that. Um, it just really fit for me. Uh, I really loved working with and helping people. But originally, my research as an undergrad was in infants. So I was always really interested in the little ones, but I realized I was more interested in what was happening before they came in to do the research study when they were in the waiting room interacting with their parents. And I thought, mm, I really want to study family interactions. And then I realized it was really fun watching them do stuff, but I really wanted to ask them what was going on. And obviously, as infants, they couldn't answer. Right. So that's how I knew I wanted to kind of go the clinical route and work with children and their families. And so that's what I did. Wait, so you're saying that you wanted to see how the infants interacted with their parents. Because when I gave birth to both of my daughters, I was, okay, so it was, first of all, magical, absolutely magical. And Sarah, who uh, is now 26, I'll never forget the first thing she did when she looked, she opened her eyes and she looked at me and I completely felt a connection to her. Like there was something that just clicked immediately. And I saw in my, I felt like she was going to be an old soul, which she is. So it was so interesting that I kind of like Ella, on the other hand, who's 15, grabbed my finger and really strong. And I looked at her and I said, you are going to be an ass-kicking, unbelievable, strong, determined young woman, which she is. So isn't that very interesting how that kind of 
What do you think about that? Well, I mean, I think that's what I was kind of observing, right? These really true connections, even from these tiny little beings and their families. And I just wanted more, right? I wanted to understand more. I wanted to understand what works. I wanted to understand what helps kids thrive and what parents can do to encourage that. Um, And so that's kind of always been a main theme that carries through for me in the work that I do and really my interest is in what can we do to foster these relationships and also what can parents do to really encourage either that warm old soul or that, you know, ass-kicking, feisty femme fatale, but what can we do to encourage those great qualities? And so that's really where my work has taken me. So I have one of your books here that you wrote. It's called Everyone Feels Angry Sometimes. And being a mom, I know that, you know, children can sometimes get very frustrated and act out and say things sometimes that they don't even realize what they're saying. And for instance, okay, I'll give you an example. Like, let's say uh, I I tell my daughter, clean your room and do your homework. They don't want to hear this, but and they get very angry. I mean, most kids will say, you know, I'll do it when I, you know, I can time manage myself, whatever. When the child acts out and says, I hate you, or I, I, I you know, leave me alone and goes to their room and slams the door shut. What do you say? What do you do? How do you handle it as a parent? Well, are we talking about for a teenager? Or are we talking no, about for a little bit? I'm, I'm talking about a 10-year-old. So the first step is if your child slams the door and goes to their room, give them a little space. That's what they're telling you they need. And one of the things that I focus on in that book and in several of my books is really the goal is to help kids self-soothe, right? And so if your child is going to their room to take space, cool off, and be able to come back and interact with you in a healthy and effective way, that's awesome. So sometimes in parenting, less is more. So step one is give them the space. So right? But if they come, yeah. Sorry. Okay, and and that's I think that's amazing advice to give them the space that they need. But sometimes you need to intervene more, right? So if they go to their room and they start smashing stuff and breaking stuff, obviously you want to make sure you keep them safe. So you might need to go and intervene to help keep them safe. Um, If they're, you know, destroying property, that's a questionable one. How important is that property? Is Are they like destroying the bed or are they ripping up like drawings, right? I would say intervene for the first, let them go with the second because there's some amount of consequence that naturally happens in response to our emotions and that's also a helpful thing for kids to learn from so what did you do what if they do do that like what if they do start throwing things and breaking things and and, and you said there is a consequence what what do you what's a good consequence to give them well it sort of depends on your kid so if they've broken something of value to them sometimes that's enough of a consequence because that feels really bad once they've calmed down and then after they're cool is when you can kind of process with them what that felt like and what they could do differently next time to keep their body and their belongings safe. If they're doing something in the moment that is unsafe, you might need to go in and just intervene and, you know, 
if they're really kind of physically out of control and it's a 10-year-old, I would encourage you to, as much as possible, just give a gentle hug to just try to wrap your arms around them, not to hold them so tight, but just to breathe slowly, hold them to try to help them start to bring their system down. Because really what's happening is their system is activated and aroused and hot. And we want to help them just regulate and bring that system down so they don't cause more destruction than they intended to. And you were saying, you know, kids will say and do things that they don't really mean in the heat of that anger. And so we want to really mm-hmm. just help them bring that anger down so that they can get into their more thinking brain and make better decisions. I love that advice. I I know that I'm, you know, listen, you and I have a set of quite a quite an age difference. When you grew up, it was I think the beginning of when parents started to communicate more with their kids. When I grew up, Parents weren't really communicating that well with their kids. It was more like, uh, you know, do this. Why? Because I said so. Because the parents didn't give the kids enough time. They didn't give them that extra 10 minutes of just sitting there with them and saying, you know what? This is why I think you should do this. This is, and do you agree with me on that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that extra explanation in the calm moment, not when the kid is throwing the stuff because they're not hearing you in that moment, but in the calm moment later when they've calmed down and they ripped up their favorite drawing and they're going to sleep that night, just being able to say, you know what? kind of stinks that you ripped up your favorite drawing, doesn't it? Yeah, I feel so bad. I mean, we taped it up, but it's not the same. Here's why I was telling you it's time to go do your homework. Because it was getting late, you're getting tired, the homework's just going to get harder the more tired you get. I know you actually want to be able to learn this stuff, and the homework helps remind you so that you don't feel stressed when it comes time for a test. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just trying to help support you do the stuff that I know is going to work well for you. Wow. That's pretty different than I told you. So. <laughs> a right? little bit, I'd say. A little bit, Yes. I have a couple of questions from people. I wanted to just run by you and and see uh, what you have to say about this. Okay, let's show you. Oh, this is a good one. This is one that I can definitely relate to. So my husband and I, we both, he had four sons and I have had a daughter. And so we were older parents and then we had, now we have our daughter together. And when she was little, he loved to talk baby. Well, I shouldn't say this. Okay, here's a question. How important is it to talk to a, to a toddler, like a to like as if you're talking to a toddler or like a young adult? In other words, baby talk is out. I love this question because there are two parts to the answer. The first part is if you talk to a toddler completely like an adult, depending on their actual intelligence and comprehension level, chances are they're going to miss a lot of what you're saying. A very precocious, intelligent toddler will probably be able to understand to some degree, even if they're missing a word here or there, and they'll then learn the meaning of that vocabulary. Most toddlers, like a two-year-old, let's just say, well, they have the comprehension of a two-year-old. So if you speak to them 
in a babyish sort of way. It might sound all cutesy and then they say the words in this really cute, funny way and it sounds so adorable. But what's happening is you're not actually teaching them in a way that's going to help foster their understanding and their comprehension. And so even though it might sound cute when they say Baba for Beth and Wawa for water, they're not actually then learning that water is water unless you talk to them and say, where's the water? They might respond Wawa. That's fine. You're going to respond to them as they talk to you. But if you speak to them in a more elevated way and you don't use terminology or even like a, a language pattern that's very babyish, for lack of a better term, baby talk, they will then learn up, right? Mm-hmm. So they will learn and they'll understand. Grow. Grow and and their vocabulary will become much broader. That's right. And you know, the thing is we tend to underestimate what children will understand and even what toddlers will understand. And when we just try What's the worst that can happen? So they don't understand you. So you try again. But the best thing that can happen is they can surprise you and really be able to respond in a way that's very valuable. I'll give you an example. I, with all of my experience with infancy research and toddler research, when our oldest was at the age of being able to climb the stairs physically, I was like, she's too young. She can't climb. What do you do with my husband? Like, oh gonna try and lo and behold next thing I know she's climbing the stairs and safely dismounting from the stairs and my thought was well we'll just put the gate up and then she'll be safe and it'll be all good but him just trying with her she surprised us she was physically capable of doing it and she understood it well enough to do it now she's safer we're still going to use the safety gate but now she's even safer because now she knows if God forbid someone forgets to close it. She now knows if she starts to climb up how to come down. That's an amazing thing. So kids will surprise you. So I say talk to them as if they're older, treat them as if they're older, and then just discover. And you can always adjust down accordingly. But if you get in the habit of talking to them like a baby, it's actually a lot harder to adjust up. And then what happens sometimes is then they end up socially behind their peers, which isn't helpful for peer-to-peer communication. Correct. Now, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We have grandchildren, and every time they come over, they love walk, they love trying to get up those stairs. And so I'll stand behind, you know, Zealand. I'll stand behind her, and but I let her do it. Like I'll, I'll say, okay, go for it. You know, as long as I'm behind her and I'm there to catch her in case. But yeah. I think it's great when they have that, and they're so determined. It's incredible. Like they know, they're like. I can do this. They're saying to them, I can do this. I'm going to do this. Ah, so it's yeah. very cool to watch that. I, lo- I love watching them. Um, there's another book you wrote, which I love. This is this is great. So this is a series, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, All right. We have a, the next one is Right Now I Am Brave. And the illustrations in these in your books are just so beautiful because to me, their life should be joyful. And they're so colorful and they're so joyful. These, these photos are just these uh, illustrations, these drawings. So kudos to your illustrator. Yes, she is incredible. She's fantastic. And I 
One way to be brave, I'm going to read this, is to talk to yourself in an encouraging way. When your brain is saying not so fast, tell yourself, I can handle it. Then you will feel much more confident and brave. That's, I mean, so true with even with adults. Right. Yes. I wrote the books in language that kids could understand, but the messaging is what I work with everyone I see, right? Whether they're three or whether they're 83, these concepts hold true. And I just put them in kind of simpler terms with beautiful illustrations. I agree from a talented illustrator, but the concepts are true and we often forget them. So one of the hopes I have had is that as parents or grandparents or teachers read these books with their kids, they're getting those messages too. And the more they're getting those messages, the more they're modeling that behavior and the more they're modeling that, the more their kids are getting it all from directly hearing it and then seeing it too, which is so incredibly powerful. You know, I have to say, I, I when, when our granddaughter came over, I read the books to her. She didn't want to do anything else. I mean, she, she had, there were toys everywhere, but she was sitting on the couch glued to these books. I mean, it, it was, uh, you know, which is the one that she really, oh, everyone feels anxious sometimes. So during COVID, what was it like? I mean, for you as you must have had a lot of people, parents concerned. I mean, kids kids couldn't go to school. And and yeah. how did you how did how did you know how what advice did you give them to deal with being at home and not being able to socialize with their friends? I mean, that's a huge thing for kids not to be able, able to be with their friends. Absolutely. COVID affected everyone in different ways, and it was really, really difficult. Creativity was one of the main strategies I used with parents and families and kids to be able to, I don't even want to say have some sense of normalcy, but have some sense of connection to their peers. And technology was a big factor in how we got creative at that time. And so that was one thing I was really encouraging parents. Patience was another thing of just really, really taking a breath, taking a pause, which is useful in our life, no matter whether we're in a it, pandemic or not. It thought, you know, it's so funny because I, it's, it, I thought to myself, you know, I, I remember having my my kids when they were, you know, with toddlers, and so many of these parents had to stay home, and a lot of them are like always at the office. So I can't even imagine what the parents must have been like. It was really tough. It was really tough for families. And not only were they home trying to work, and then they were being teachers full time on top of it. So it was really, really difficult for families with young kids. Um, but being creative did allow some families to really come together and try new things and spend more time as a family, which a lot of people share with, have shared with me as a silver lining. Um, Right Now I'm Fine was actually born out of the first few weeks of the pandemic when, at least where I was living at the time in San Francisco, we were in total lockdown. People were not leaving their homes except to go to the grocery store. It was very, very lockdown, isolated, scary, uncertain. And so I was just trying to figure out what can I do? I can't contribute enough. I can't help enough. Obviously, I'm trying to help 
the families who I work with, but there are so many more families being affected who I cannot even possibly reach. And so that's where that book came from right now. I find really helping people cope with big, difficult things that happen and what they can do. And the biggest underlying message there is when things are uncertain or unpredictable, there are always going to be things that are certain or are predictable and how do you turn towards those and rely on those to help you manage the uncertainty of the things that you can't know and that's useful advice whether it's a pandemic or just something tough happening in your life is to realize there are always certain things that are knowable and you can use those as your touchstones even if it's I'm going to wake up tomorrow. I'm going to brush my teeth in the morning. We have food in the fridge for breakfast, right? right. We're going to do that. There's always What's something come to look forward to. There's always a positive. Right. right. And there's always something you can know that you can turn to and use that to help manage the discomfort of all the uncertainty that may be otherwise true as well. Now, let's see here. Oh, Leslie from Boca Raton, Florida asks, I have twins, a boy and a girl. What are your thoughts about sending them to different schools as one needs to be a bit more challenged than the other? Also, for the aspect of having different friends. What are your thoughts? Great, great question, Leslie. So the I'm just going to take it one step further and say it sounds like the underlying thought you're having here, which I totally support, is being able to allow them to differentiate and individualize. Twins are often grouped together at the same age. They could be in the same class at school, same groups of friends, same activities. It's very easy for them to kind of just get put together as a pair as they go. So the idea of separating them so that they have their own identities and their own groups is great. Whether that means they're in different schools or just different classes, whether it means that they're in um, you know, completely separate friend groups or that you're just helping them foster some individual friends within that friend group, there's no right or wrong. But this idea of giving them their own identity within that twin identity is a great one. And there are also good mental health outcomes from that research has shown. So really being able to help them see themselves as an individual person as well as a twin is a really, really great thing for you to be thinking about. So I would be focusing on feasibility. I mean, if it's going to create a better educational experience for both of them and make it easier to not compare if they're in different schools, fantastic. Mm-hmm. If it's going to create a logistical light nightmare that's going to make your family 10 times more stressed than if they were mm-hmm. in the same school, consider that too, right? So just thinking through the costs and benefits, as long as you're helping them both have their own individual path and see themselves as independent They're of each identity. other. Right. That's really, that's really what I would be focusing on. But that's really great thinking, Leslie. That's really important. That's really important. Yeah. I, I agree with you on that. Um, how do we get our toddlers to eat more vegetables? <laughs> I used to sneak. I used to sneak. Well, my daughter loved Ella loved vegetables when she was a baby, and then as she got older, she was like twelve, and I said, "So you're not eating as much broccoli as you used to eat." And she's, uh, "No, mom, I, I'm, 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 I don't want the broccoli." So I would sneak it into her smoothies. That's creative. <laughs> don't watch create. Creativity in parenting is key, right? So I love, I love all creative 
ideas. So I have a patient who gets her kiddos to eat veggies by allowing them their screen time right before dinner. So she has time to prepare dinner and she gives them cut veggies to have as their like appetizer or mousse-bouche um, while they're eating. And they're so hungry at that time. And right. also they're like engrossed in their, you know, Daniel Tiger or Louie or whatever they're watching during that time that they are just enjoying the veggies. So that's a great way to do it. Um, also, this works for me. I'm not a nutritionist, so I can't give I can't give great advice on this, but I can say that just being creative, right? So, you know, interestingly, my daughter at a pediatrician well visit, the doctor asked, what are your favorite foods? And out of her mouth came broccoli, much to our surprise. We were all like, really? <laughs> and so we news just to me. referred news to us, but here's how it worked. We've referred back to that multiple times when preparing broccoli and giving her broccoli you told Dr. Atkins this is one of your favorite foods. We'll make sure we have broccoli this week, right? And so we serve like, her the broccoli and she's committed to this being one of her favorite foods. She said it. And so we just remind her of that. And I think that's why she eats broccoli. Um, you know, but being creative and getting them involved and also being colorful. Right? Kids are so visual. So yes. if you can be creative with the colors in the veggies and, you know, there is that concept and nutrition of eating the rainbow. And if you can just kind of put the veggies out in a way that's going to look appealing to your kids, or for some reason, they're going to be excited by this. Right. They'll be less focused on the fact that they're veggies or how they taste them, more excited about the experience. I love Trader Joe's has the colorful carrots. You know, the carrots mm-hmm. that are all the mm-hmm. purple carrot, the yellow carrots, yep. the orange carrots. Orange. And so when Ella Absolutely. was younger, I used to give her those and she, the, just the orange carrots were it was okay but when she saw the purple carrots she was so excited yeah right Great. yeah Great. no I, I colorful plates it, they really make a difference the other thing is kids love autonomy and independence and food is a good place to involve them in that so it feels like they're getting choice and so if you can involve them in the preparation of the food in any way then they're getting some ownership over that and if they've helped you whether it's arrange the carrots or you know if they're a little bit older perhaps cutting some things or cooking some things or tossing the salad now they're engaged and involved and curious and that can really help get them to want to at least try whenever i used to make pancakes in the morning i used to tell my daughter i said why don't you mix the batter like you know you could make and you could you know do it with me she loved it she loved it loved it and it made it even like it was like a little project yeah they love yeah. being engaged. Then, they really do love being engaged, and I don't think people know that. I don't think, I don't think enough parents really understand how important it is to engage with your kids, especially nowadays. You know, there's so much going on with social media, and 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 you know, people, kids are getting bullied, and kids aren't even telling their parents half of the things they're watching on social media. I mean, this whole thing is just blown up, and it and it it's causing. I mean you know, teenage suicide. And, and, you know, I, I really believe that if, if parents just take, and I know, you know, look, everyone has, they're busy, their schedules are busy, but I really think like whenever I pick my kids up, always, you know, my older daughter, my young, 
the first thing I would say is how, tell me the highlight of your day. How was your day? What was the highlight? What were the best things that happened today? What did you do in school? You know, stuff. What stuff? What kind of stuff? You know, things like that. And it just makes such a difference because they really love when you are interested in what they're doing. Don't you agree? I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I love that you're asking specific questions. We're much more likely to get an answer from, what did you learn today in science? Right. Focusing on rather than how school. Yeah. They've given you a reasonable answer. Or just a yes or no. Right. But just a yes or no, if you ask a yes or no question, but if you ask a more open-ended but specific question, you're more likely to get a more specific answer. So that's one thing I would encourage parents to do. And I agree with you. I think oftentimes parents, especially of teenagers, think that their kids just want to be left alone because their kids say, leave me alone. But actually, interestingly, from my side of things, hearing from teenagers, teenagers want their parents to engage with them more. So inviting, come help me cook dinner tonight or, you know, Hey, you got to go run a few errands. Will you come keep me company on the ride? Parents are surprised that their kids say yes to doing yeah. those kinds of things. Even 16 and 17 and 18 year olds who seems like, oh, they just want to be with their friends and do their thing in their room. But really showing them that you want to be with them and spend time with them. They might not say yes to the first thing. Maybe they absolutely hate going to the grocery store. That doesn't mean you should stop there. Really encourage parents to invite their kids along to do things and ask them to be involved with you. They want to be around you. Kids want to be around their parents, even teenagers. And, you know, it's really important that parents acknowledge that and also know what's going on in their kids' lives. You were talking about social media. Parents are often afraid to monitor or afraid if they start to monitor, their kids are more tech savvy and will try to be more private or kind of lock them out. Some kids will. However, it's also a really good idea if you're the one who's paying for the service and you know, in, uh, the one who's enabling them to have it by giving them the device, that you're also monitoring it. It lets kids know that kids know that it's safe, that they're safe, that parents are watching them, that parents are caring, that parents are involved. And it also helps kids make better decisions if they know someone else is going to potentially be seeing what they're doing or saying it creates some accountability that otherwise kids might not have. And so if you know someone is going to be seeing something, someone that you care about, uh, like a family member is going to be seeing something that you're writing or doing on social media, it's going to build in a pause of causing you to decide whether or not that's what you want to put out there in the world. If you don't know if anyone's ever seeing it or who's going to be paying attention, you're more likely to just put things out freely. So it's a really, really good safeguard. And kids feel good when there is security, when they know their parents are watching and are caring. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I remember when my older daughter was in school and she, uh, you know, I was always like the mom who sat by the pool when the kids were swimming in case one of them went under and I would pull them out of the, I mean, I was, they call, yeah, I was the neurotic mom. Okay. Neurotic, but they knew that when their kids came to my house, that they were as safe as my own child was that I would watch their kids like they were my own because that's who, that's who I am. 
Now, my daughter said to me once, and it was very, it really hit me really, really hard in a good way. She said, you know what, mom, now that I'm an adult, I realize now how much you truly cared. And I saw a lot of people whose parents were not really that involved. And a lot of those people went in a different direction and mm. had, you know, unfortunately, whatever, they they just had a hard time. Um, you know, just in the kind of in the real world, they were uh, very uh, affected, by, affected by that, 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 that a lot of the parents were not as invested and didn't feel like their parents really cared cared enough. And what you just said is so important to care. You have, I always care, and I even say to my kids, I say, you know, you, you just need to care. Care about your job. Care about what you're doing at the time. Care about, you know, care about other people. Care, but but always care because when you care. I think that it it really helps you in your life all around in 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 your career in your social situations in your relationships right I mean just you know I I just think that's important I agree uh, right now, I am kind is all about that, right? Oh, and so, kind. getting that message, you have it. <laughs> Here we go. Getting getting that message young about caring, being aware of other people, being thoughtful of other people, offering help, participating, doing all those things. If we can teach these messages to kids young, they will start to care for their communities around them, whether it's their classroom or their family or their extracurricular dance class or whatever. And that will carry over. And the really nice thing about being kind and caring for others is that it then results in a reciprocal response from other people. So if other people feel cared about by you, they will care for you. And the day that you miss dance class, they'll say, oh, you weren't here last time. Let me show you what you missed. They'll actually go out of their way if they feel like you're caring for them to care for you. So that's a great and very important message. I I think, oh, sorry. I love this. Sometimes we just want to think about ourselves. And, you know, I mean, it's it's so true. We want what we want. We want to do what we want to do. It's all about us. But it's just so great to be able to go over to somebody on in the schoolyard and say, "Are you okay? Do you do you need something? Like, is there anything you need?" Yeah. There was yeah. a little girl sitting on a bench once. She was sitting alone, and my daughter said. Mom, she was sitting all by herself at school and, I, you know, she was, a couple of kids were picking on her and she goes, I just went over her and sat next to her and said, you know, are you, are you okay? Because I always say to my kids, I said, do one random act of kindness every day, just at least one, because that's what I do. And I love, even if I walk into Starbucks and the woman behind the, the counter, it looks like she's having a hard time. I just want to do anything to make her smile. I'll just... I just want to, you know, I'll say something, whether it's whatever it is. And she feels good and I feel good. I feel better when I see somebody else feeling better. And I think the world needs that. We need that. 
We need yeah. more. Kindness is contagious, right? So when we do one kind act, but the cool thing about teaching your daughters to do one kind act a day is it's putting it on their radar, right? And so it's increasing their awareness. It's putting it on their radar and it's causing them to look around and see where the world needs help, right? Where the people around them, the barista at Starbucks, rather than just thinking, oh, she looks sour. Like, oh, she looks sour. It looks like she's having a hard day. Let me say something. Let me give her a compliment. Right. Or let me, t- let me tell her a joke, right? And then she feels better. And then she greets the next person with a smile. And that makes that person feel better, right? It's contagious. It just keeps going and going. And so just being mindful and aware of being kind and then putting it out there in the world is a great, great thing for kids to start to do young because it only builds on itself. Right, right. Mm-hmm. I said to I said to the woman, I remember I said, looked at her, I said, you know, you have such a great smile. And she didn't know what to do with that. You know, she was just because I don't know if anyone ever told her that. And because she I I used to see her all the time and she never smiled much. But then when I saw kind of that smile, I said, you know, you have a great smile. I do? Oh, really? Oh, thank you. You know, you could see she was. And after that, when I would walk in, she would smile at me. She would she would, she would, would give me a smile, which was so beautiful. So, yeah. Oh, here's a good one. This is great. I like this. So Desiree from Tarzana, California. If my husband and I have a disagreement, we try not to argue in front of our kids. Is it better to do it in private than in, in front of them? Absolutely. There is no situation where it's better to argue in front of your kids because they're only getting a snapshot, right? And so they don't necessarily, they might see the fight, but they don't necessarily see the hopefully the resolution, the talking through it, the working through, the making up. And so they're just left with this really unpleasant experience of seeing their parents fight and not knowing how it all plays out. So unless you're playing out the whole thing in front of them, which I still think it's better not to do unless you're modeling for them how to resolve something. It's okay if it's a little debate or a small thing, but a really angry fight out of eye sh- out of earshot, out of eyesight of kids is what I always say. But is it okay to say, okay, so you're in the car and you're getting into a conversation and you're having a disagreement in the car. I mean, is it, it I think, I mean, tell me, is it good to say, I don't know, Daddy and I are having a disagreement. Doesn't mean that we're not having a fight or anything. We just, you know, we love each other. We're just disagreeing on something and we're working through it. Sure. Disagreements happen in real life. Keep them safe. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. So, and it's okay as long as you're treating your partner with respect. But some people, when they get into fights, don't necessarily treat their partners with respect because they get really angry. And listen, if that process works for a couple, that's okay. I once spoke with a woman who said, my husband and I yell so loud when we get mad at each other, but we both have short fuses. We burn out fast and we're hugging each other within minutes, right? That's fine. But the hearing parents yelling, even if you see the hugging, can still be really scary. Oh, confusing. 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 And so, you know, if possible, especially like a big argument, save it for private. Um, This can be really destabilizing for kids, but an absolutely a, a difference of agreement talked about respectfully and having kids here like agree to disagree. 
I or or you know, a parent snapping. We're humans, right? So one right. parent snapping at another parent, and then once you've called off a few minutes later, I'm sorry for snapping at you. That wasn't right. Apologize. You know? An apology, a repair, oh, and kids huge, being able to huge. see this between their parents, that is all healthy. So the thing that I just want to caution against is really angry fights that feel out of control. That's scary because kids will feel that if they see their parents dysregulated and out of control. And also if they're only seeing part of it without the resolution and the conclusion, they're not getting the full story. It's like getting a new snippet out of context rather than hearing mm. or seeing the whole full story. That's, that's what yeah. I would really caution again. But I think the apology is very big because I think it's important for people in general to be able to say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I said that. I'm sorry I hurt your feelings. Your feelings are so important to me. If there's anything I ever, or, you know, if you're dealing with even, uh, you know, a friend, uh, and the friend is acting a little maybe distant and you, you want to know why the don't you want to know why the friend is acting distant? So, say, is there anything I did to hurt your feelings, to offend you, to? Because otherwise, you'll never know. You'll never know, and you may not resolve it. One I know it's easier really... for adults to say it than kids. It is. It is. But you're modeling it for them, right? And one of the things I love about how you said your "I'm sorry" is where. I'm sorry if I hurt your feelings. I'm sorry if I did something to offend you. You didn't say, I'm sorry if your feelings were hurt. I'm sorry if you were offended. So you're not putting it on them. You're actually mm -hmm. owning, it. owning it. And that language of being able to own the apology and own your responsibility in how they're feeling, now you're showing kids that it's okay to be responsible for doing something wrong, Take accept responsibility, apologize, and then have that repair occur, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of humans, I'll say, from little, little kids to older adults have a very hard time accepting responsibility. Really, the main emotion that gets in the way is shame or guilt. And if you can show kids, you don't have to be ashamed for making a mistake. You don't have to be ashamed for hurting someone's feelings. You're going to make mistakes and hurt people's feelings. You're a human. Right, And if you can apologize and repair, I would argue a repaired relationship is a better relationship than one that hasn't been bruised in the first place because now you and that friend know we can have a disagreement, get through it, and still care deeply about each other rather I, than we yes. care really deeply about each other, but we never upset each other. So we know that works, right? You don't so want to walk on deeply about each other. Exactly. You never want to walk and in any trails in a relationship, whether it's your spouse, whether it's your, you know, friend, it's your, or your kids, or your, you know, who, what kid wants to walk on eggshells with their parent? That's, that's not a very comfortable situation to be no. in, right? No. No. What do you feel? How do you feel about when the kids, I notice a lot of kids control the house. They're, they're, Parents don't know how to say no. What is that about? It's very uncomfortable as a parent. I was going to say maybe the most uncomfortable, top five most uncomfortable things as a parent is to experience your child being in any kind of distress. And so 
the best way to get your child out of distress is by saying yes to whatever you said no to that put them in distress in the first place, right? So my little guy is not yet two, is very fiery and he will get really upset and he loves his pacifier and we're trying to not have him use it as often because he doesn't talk as much with it with it in and he actually is speaking up a storm so we want to encourage that so we take it away and he gets really upset sad angry just melts and I know exactly how to make the melt stop immediately. And by the way, the melt is making me very uncomfortable as a parent. And so one of the most powerful things parents can do is tolerate their kids' distress. When we do, that meltdown lasts, especially if I could distract him, several seconds. Okay, maybe if your kid is a teenager or tween, it's going to be several minutes, maybe an hour. Tolerating that distress allows you to say no. And it's interesting because oftentimes if you talk to parents, there are things they have very strong convictions about. And those are kind of no-brainers. So it's much easier to tolerate the distress when you're sure you're right. It's much harder when you're not sure you're right or it doesn't matter as much. Like I'm confident we're going to be able to wean him off the pacifier. So it doesn't matter as much as it does that he, for example... He's buckled in his car seat. That's that's non-negotiable. So he can cry and scream as I'm buckling him in. It doesn't phase me the same way because I know I'm buckling him into the car seat. That's right. not a question. Yeah. If he's uncomfortable, yeah. sorry, kiddo, safety first. Right? And so I encourage parents, and I do this myself, is to think about, okay, if this were a hard no, would I be willing to tolerate this experience? And then I just try to apply it, right? So parents, a lot of times when kids, question them, push back, have a lot of distress. Parents question themselves because, by the way, there's usually not a manual for this stuff, right? And so we don't always know. Car seat, easy. There is a manual. Your pediatrician says, you buckle them in every time. Put that seat on, right. But there are other things that we're not sure. Is it okay for them to wear that crop top out to this place? I don't know. And so they push back and that's uncomfortable to hold the line. And so parents often... Say, okay. And that's where you start to see You choose your battles. You have to choose your battles. Right. And so the ones that it's really no big deal, okay. Say yes. Right? It's also not nice to always be that no parent where everything is no. And then your kid is just going to start sneaking around to get yeses. At the same time, there are a lot of instances where they put up a little bit of a fight because that's what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to be wanting to be in charge. Right. older kids or tweens or teens that it's part of the individuation process and so they want to be in charge so they're going to push back it's developmentally healthy and appropriate for them to do it but it doesn't mean the thing that they're pushing back about is developmentally appropriate and healthy for them to do so that's where it comes up to the parents to say i don't want to deal with this pouting argument yelling screaming and yet i know it's not okay for them to be wearing that top to this place so I got to hold the line on this one. And and I encourage parents in those situations to do it. So um, what do you think about kids having a TV in their room? Because I Can went... give me a little, a little more context? Well, a little more well, context. well so I never, I never allowed my older daughter to have a television in her room. I had a television in my room. 
and it wasn't good. I would have my mom, I could hear my mom yelling, the lamb chops are ready. Dinner's ready, Lisa. Come on out and eat. And I would be watching I Love Lucy. And I would be watching the Brady Bunch. And I would be, I'll be right there, Mom. Ten minutes. Lisa, I'll be right there, Mom. Fifteen minutes. Uh, honey, you're missing dinner. Come out. It was, for me, it was an addiction. Uh, it was an and so I now have a 15 year old who actually just turned 16 yesterday, and my husband and I disagreed. Her dad and I we both disagreed. He thinks she should have a TV. She's straight A student. Well, let's keep it that way. Maybe maybe there's something there. The fact that she doesn't have a TV, her grades are very good. You know, volleyball player doing. Well, guess what we did yesterday? We went to Costco. I gave in. Honey? Okay, we're going to go get your TV. She has a TV now in her room. And I'm... I mean, what do you think? I think you should treat it as an experiment. I think that you should set some guidelines of what your expectations are. So, you know, if she previously was spending this much time watching TV, then I would just set some guidelines about what you expect for her to be able to do. And if you make those explicit, so she knows what the expectations are and kind of what the rules or parameters of the TV are, if she respects those, I think then she is demonstrating that she can have a TV and manage it. When you say her parameter, what do we, so in other words, she goes, she, she said, okay, you know what, what is the difference between me having my laptop in front of me watching a movie, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. let's say one of her favorite Netflix shows, whatever. Mm-hmm. She says, I, I'm straining my eyes on the computer. Well, mm-hmm. I said, well, you're straining your eyes looking up at the TV just as much as you are on the computer. So neither one is good. Well, I mean, that is true, but that's why I kind of asked you for context, right? Because if she's watching on her computer or her little phone screen, she is straining her eyes, she is straining her neck. She, there. So if it's one or the other, if she's laying back on her bed watching the TV, it's a bigger screen, it's a different neck position from what she's doing all the time. It's going to be healthier than constantly being in that same position. And she's doing it anyway, that she's not spending more time or she's not isolating more, it's okay. I would be less concerned. So, if she used to watch a show with you in like a family TV and now she's watching it by herself in her room and doesn't want to come out and social. So something that used to be social becomes not social. Those are the kind of things that I would be watching out for, right? We don't want the TV to mean she's going to be isolating more. Right. Not healthy for teens. I agree. But if the behavior change is not really significant, if her grades don't go down, if she's not, if she doesn't stop practicing volleyball, if she doesn't, you know, if she is not spending her summer days in a room watching TV rather than out at the pool, I wouldn't worry. Mm. If you're seeing a change in her behavior that's showing that she's using the TV, now that it's a TV as opposed to her laptop, it's more enjoyable, comfortable, whatever, that she's preferring that and not doing other things you want to encourage, that's when I would think it was more of a problem. So that's what I mean by treat it like an experiment. Yeah. Set parameters. And if she meets them, 
just a different device, just a yeah. different format. Yeah, yeah. And then what do you think about like was when because my my older daughter did this too. They loved doing their homework. Well, to music is fine. I, I I'm okay. You know, I'm I'm fine. I think music is great, and I think it's very soothing to have it in the background. But how I I never understood how kids were able to do homework and have their computer on with a show going. And then yet, I mean, do well. I mean, it's such a distraction. Don't you think it's a distraction to have a, to be able to do that? <laughs> I know you're not for well, that. Well, the quick answer is it's not, right? They can't. And research shows this. Research shows that when we think, when we ask people how well they think they are at multitasking, and then we actually assess how well they do on tasks when they're multitasking, we think we're much better multitaskers than we are. Our our sense of ability to do multiple tasks at once is so inflated as humans. We are not good multitaskers. And so what happens is everything goes down. So it takes kids longer to do homework or it takes kids shorter because they're being sloppy and they're not really invested because their attention is split. And divided attention is not a good thing when, we're, when it comes to doing a, a task that we're supposed to be focusing on. Right. So having TV on in the background, I don't see it. I don't hear it. I've watched it a million times. It doesn't matter. It's distracting and you are not doing your homework as well, as efficiently, as effectively as if it's off. And then the other thing, and this is where I often get buy-in from teens, is you will enjoy watching so much better if you do it sequentially rather than in parallel. So your homework's going to take you longer because you're going to be distracted whether you tell me you are or not. And right. so it's going to take longer. So you're not really enjoying the show. You're not really getting out of the homework what you're trying to get out. So if you do the homework, get it done, and then you watch your show, you get to really enjoy the show, focus on it, and get so much more out of it. It's more yeah. enjoyable. The whole experience is well, more enjoyable. Of course, because so, you, you could actually hear the dialogue and really understand what, what's going on. Exactly. Um, what about your feelings on cleaning? Uh, does a kid have to clean their room? Can they have, uh, like have their room look like a tornado hit it? What do you, what are your thoughts? Should you leave them alone? Should you say, uh, if you don't clean your room, blah, 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 like, or this is their living space. So if there's, it's their choice to live that way. Uh, I used to tell my daughter, I used to tell my daughter, I'm going to throw everything, anything on the floor is going to go in the trash. That Don't say that it. unless you mean it. it. Works. Don't it say works. it unless you mean it. Yeah. Well, if you're really going to do that, you have to follow through. It. You have to follow through. You have to, if you, if you say that and you don't mean it, then what you start to do is give empty threats and those are really unhelpful for parents. So yeah. You got to commit. And, and so if something's about to come out of your mouth or does come out of your mouth and you don't mean it, it's okay to say, okay, wait, let me take a step back. I'm not going to throw everything away, but blah, 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 or just commit to it and, and decide that you're going to do that. Um, if your kids know you mean it, then warning of a consequence is a completely reasonable and great parenting strategy. But, you know, is it okay for their rooms to be a mess? First of all, we have different ideas of what messy means, right? So if you take a parent who really likes things very clean and very clear and is very fastidious about this in other areas of the home, 
when their kid is kind of messy, but they can find everything, they're not losing things, whatever, less of a concern. We know that people do well when their spaces are clean and clear. When our spaces are clear, we can think clearly. So if your kid's sitting at a desk with mountains and they're trying to do their homework, they're not going to be able to think as clearly as if they're sitting at a clear surface. That's true. We know that. But going back to what you were saying earlier about picking your battles, you know, if your child is not handing in their homework assignments because everything in their room is such a mess that they put it down and they can't find it to bring it into school tomorrow, that's when the mess is starting to become a problem. So if the mess is affecting their functioning, then it's time to really work on how do we clean this room This and, and, and really appealing to, and this goes back to what you were saying earlier as well, just sit down and talk to them. I'm concerned you're spending time doing your homework. You're putting in the effort. And then you're getting a zero for it because you can't find it to turn it in because your room's such a mess. That's not fair to you. That's not cool. Let's figure out how to solve this problem. That's very different, right? Of your room's a mess. Clean it up. Now they have a reason, a rationale for why to do it. Um, but if they're functioning optimally, and I mean like not tripping over stuff. I mean, some kids' rooms are actually dangerous. That's not okay. You wouldn't have your kid like, you know, plugging electric sockets into a wet area. That's dangerous, right? And so you're not going to have them have things on the floor that they can trip over and bang their head on the the corner of the dresser. That's dangerous. So if it's dangerous, that's another thing, again, to talk them through. This is getting unsafe. We need to make this room safe. But if they just have a different way of doing things and they have their piles or you know, the clean laundry never makes it back into the closet. It just gets worn again. Well, is it's not it the end of the it? world. Is it's it not worth the end? Right, right, right. For you, I can talk to you for hours. You are have so much valuable advice. I can't even tell you. I wish I knew you. I wish you were a doctor when I was a younger mother. <laughs> but, um, I just, I just can't thank you enough for being with me today, Dr. Danny mm-hmm. Owen, Dr. Daniela Owen. I want to tell people that these books are gold right here. These books are gold. These are the best gifts you can give to a child, to a parent of a child, to an adult. We learn from it. Listen, I'm learning. I learned a lot from this. Um if anyone wants to, are these on Amazon, Barnes & Noble? Where, where do we get these? I think the easiest way is to get them through Amazon okay. right now. Well, we all have Amazon accounts. So um, so, uh, so, what are you up to now? What are you working on right now? Well, I've been really excited recently. I, I actually just finished my final pilot class today, I have been working on a parenting program. It's a five-week program for parents. It's called Be Amazing, Raising Resilient Children. And it's all focused on teaching parents skills to help them raise resilient children. So to help them build resilience in their children, what to do, what to say, how to model these skills and practice on themselves to increase resilience in their own children. Wow. Okay. Well, I think we're going to have a lot of listeners who might be interested in uh, getting involved in this program. So it's going to be a webinar. So parents are just zooming in. It's 
five weeks. And so each class is 60 minutes. And I am teaching direct, clear skills. The idea is that you walk away with concrete things that you can practice right off the bat with your kids. And it's for kids as young as five and as old as, you know, seniors in high school. It it can apply to older kids too, but the idea is that it's kind of kids that are under the same roof-ish as you. Okay, Dr. Owen, how do people contact you? The easiest thing to do is just to go to my website. It's drdaniellaowen.com. And there is a place to contact me. There's information about my books. There is information about the Be Amazing Raising Resilient Parenting Program. All of that's right there on my website. And so it's D-R-D-A-N-I-E-L-A-O-W-E-N.com. Okay, everyone, you hear that? So that's the way to get in touch with Dr. Owen. But I just want to say thank you so, so, so much for being with me today. And I, it was really very, very um, informational. And good luck if anyone wants to reach out to you and and maybe uh, ask you some advice, they can uh, contact you. So we're going to have your information on our, uh, our our page and they can uh, find that there. So I want you to wish you, you're probably love being a mom. Your kids are so lucky. <laughs> and hopefully maybe when you come out with your next book, we'll have you on again. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was such fun. Thank you so much again. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Daniela Owen, for being with me today. And I want to thank my producers, Alan Chizinski, Melissa Leonard, and my composer, Jeff Urban, my writer, Adam Labarkin. And I want to thank all of you for leaning in with me today. And until next time, leaning out. Put it to the test. Lean in, Lisa. So get off your chest. It's more than just a trend, cause everyone's her friend. So lean in with Lisa. Spend your time with Lisa. Lisa's got something to say. So reach out to Lisa every day.